Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. My name is Brad Warner, and I'll be your host. I am the author of the books The Other Side of Nothing, Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, Don't Be a Jerk, Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate, and many other fine books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to the URL hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main means of support, and I really appreciate your donations. But as always, this is offered for free, so you don't got to donate if you don't want to donate. Okay, today's podcast comes from April 24th, 2016, and it was recorded at the Rochester Zen Center in Rochester, New York. And some people had asked me if I would do a podcast about Dogen, so I picked this one out because I thought I talk a lot about Dogen in this one. This is mainly about a piece he wrote called Sokushin Zeibutsu, which means mind alone is Buddha, which is a very intriguing statement. And I covered it in my book, Don't Be a Jerk, which I was promoting at the time that I recorded this. So that's why I'm talking about it. And I thought you might enjoy it if you want to hear me talk about Dogen. So let's listen to me from 2016 in Rochester talking about Dogen. Well, good uh, good evening, everybody. On the way up here, Piruz and I were talking about about a lot of stuff, and he started telling me, you know, I notice when you start to talk, you're kind of feeling out the audience for the first few minutes, and, you know, he was being a little, I think, a little critical of that approach. Because when you're in a band, you always start off your best song, you know, and you try to get the crowd excited right off the bat, but when I start to talk, I don't do that. I sort of kind of chat with people until I kind of get a sense of what the audience is, is like. So, um, what should I tell you? Uh, I got, when I first started touring around and doing these, these talks in places other than where I lived, uh, it became this endless parade of me telling my life story and how I got into Buddhism over and over and over and over. And I got so sick of hearing my own story of how I got into Buddhism that I just stopped doing it. But then usually, not usually, but often at, at the end of a talk, after I've given a talk, Somebody will say, well, how did you get into Buddhism? And <laughs> i got to do it again. So if you want to do that, I don't mind. But I think I'd rather just sort of launch into something else uh, to begin with. Uh, and what I'm talking about, this, this tour, and what I'm kind of interested in, not just as a promotional thing, I mean, it is that, but also because I think it's an interesting topic, is, uh, is this book I, I wrote about Dogen. And... I don't know how many people are here are members of this temple, but if you are, you probably don't, I don't know how much you know about Dogen, because he's not part of the, he's not usually studied in the Rinzai tradition. Although, uh, in researching this book, I found out that he had, he had a, a, a transmission in the Rinzai lineage as well. Uh, so, um, so he had both. Um, I guess I sort of knew that early on, but it tends to be de-emphasized, um, in sort of later commentaries, and then I uh, read that again. So he was he was transmitted in both Rinzai and Soto Zen, but Soto Zen was his his baby, sort of, in Japan. So um, I'll give you a little little short story of who Dogen was, uh, rather than the short story of who I'll give you a story 
of who Dogen was and how he got into Buddhism, because I think that's more interested, <laughs> interesting than, than I am and how I got into Buddhism. Um, he was born in the year 1200, which always makes it easy to date when anything, he puts dates on all of his writings, so you can always also figure out how old he was very easily. Uh, so he was born in 1200 in Japan as the illegitimate son of, a, of some kind of an aristocrat. Um, there is a little bit of uh, debate about who exactly his father was, uh, but uh, they know that his father died probably a polit politically motivated assassination when uh, Dogen was about two years old, and um, he probably never knew his father anyway. His mother died when he was seven, and I think that hers was not any sort of intrigue or anything. It was probably just people were dying of all sorts of stuff in those days because medicine wasn't very advanced or anything. So he lost both parents early on in his life, and the story goes that when he was watching the, uh, the smoke rise from uh, the cremation of his mother is when he made his decision to become a Buddhist monk. And he doesn't, that's not something that we have from his own words. Uh, that's a later biographer said that, so we don't know if that's precisely true, but it makes for a good story. Uh, but we do know that by the time he was 12 or 13 years old, he'd become a, a Buddhist monk. Uh, this was not unprecedented at the time. Uh, most people did. Um, he was studying in the Rinzai lineage of, of Zen, and, which, is, uh, which is what Rochester Zen Center is part of. Or are you, you're Rinzai Soto, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. But I think it's more leaning towards Rinzai. I mean, I read Three Pillars of Zen years ago, so that's, that's my... Kapoor was um, a Soto approach. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So was a Soto mm. But then he left the Soto. Yeah, but there was more of that koan stuff, yeah. wasn't there? Okay, okay. Anyway, so... Um, so anyway, so, uh, so he, uh, he was studying the Rinzai lineage, which was the only lineage that was uh, a round of Zen at the time in Japan. Uh, he was dissatisfied because the monks that he talked to, the older monks, uh, were not able to answer this one question he had, which was real basic, which is Buddhist teaching says that we are all perfect just as we are. So why do we have to meditate? Why do we have to you know, bow to statues and all this other stuff that we do. Why are we doing all this? And I'm sure people gave him answers, but he wasn't happy with any of those answers. So he and his teacher ended up going to China when Dogen was in his early 20s. And he, uh, he studied a little bit in China with Myozen, and Myozen, that was his teacher, uh, died while he was over there, while they were both over there, and Dogen was kind of left on his own. Uh, at this point, he, um, he was about to leave China because he didn't think he was finding what he was looking for there, but he heard about this master named Tendo Nyojo. So he decided to go see Tendo Nyojo. Uh, he's a Tiantong Rujing, I think, in, in Chinese. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was through Nyojo that he got this idea that uh, Zazen is not a practice to try to bring about an experience called enlightenment, that Zazen itself was enlightened, that, uh, you know, that the practice itself was enlightenment. And for anybody who's actually done Zazen, this is my old mantra, I would say, it doesn't feel much like enlightenment. You know, it doesn't feel that, uh, I don't know how it is for you, for me, most of the time it doesn't feel much like enlightenment. It just feels like, you know, just sitting still for a while. 
Um, but he brought this practice back to, to Japan, Japan, and started a little temple near Kyoto, and almost immediately <clears throat> started writing about it. Uh, and he ended up producing a huge body of work, uh, written work about uh, Buddhist practice as he understood it, um, which, uh, which is the basis for this, this book I wrote. And then he died. Uh, he four, but most biographers refer to him as being 53 years old, so I guess that means he died before his 54th birthday. So he was quite young when he died, which makes for an interesting thing in that... Um, in that a lot of a lot of people when they imagine a Buddhist master, they imagine this kind of old Yoda like figure, you know, propping himself on a cane and going, the wisdom of the ages, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, Dogen, unfortunately for him, never got to be that kind of person. So his his writing has this kind of uh, youthful quality, because he was wrote most of his things between the ages of 27 and, and 45. During the last few years of his life, he'd slowed down quite a bit with the writing at least of Shobo Genzo, although he was still composing poetry. Uh, so, um, so most of this stuff that, that I worked on was, uh, was written, see the latest piece I've got in this book is 1241, so you can figure out how old he was when he wrote that. Um, and, and the earliest piece is, uh, is dated 1227, so uh, those, are, those are his ages, easy to figure out. Um, so what I did with this book is I... Um, uh, I was uh, in Philadelphia at this place called, a, a, I think it's called Atomic City Comics or something, uh, with a friend of mine, and uh, she and I were shopping, and I picked up this book called uh, The War That Time Forgot, which was a comic about dinosaurs fighting soldiers on a lost island in the Pacific Ocean during World War II, which is a really cool little book. Um, and, and my friend picked up a book called God is Disappointed in Me, which, uh, which it turns out the book is a guy, uh, I always forget his, I should memorize his name. Anyway, whatever. Uh, he, he took the entire Christian Bible and rewrote it in his own words and added a lot of humor and kind of irreverence, but he's still uh, respectful to the source material. And my friend said, uh, maybe you ought to try that with Shobo Genzo, which is Dogen's masterwork. And at first I thought, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> I mean, not to belittle my friend, but I thought there's no way to do that. Um, but I didn't really have any better ideas. And my publishers were kind of going, you know, when are you going to give us another book? And so I just sat down with a stack of translations of Shobo Genzo in front of me and started doing it. And I liked, uh, I liked the results, the initial results, and, uh, and just decided to keep going. So what I'd like to do, instead of talking to you, I picked out two sections, and I'm going to see how each of them goes with this particular audience. Um, one, they're both, they're both fairly difficult ones tonight. When I was in New York City, I decided to, to read the one about uh, the proper way to clean your butt after going to the toilet. Uh, but I'm not going to do that one because I already just did that one. Um, but that, there is a chapter about that to just give you an idea of how wide-ranging the things are in Shobo Genzo. He, he talks about very deep, interesting, philosophical things about the nature of time and the nature of mind and the universe and all this stuff. And then he has other chapters where he talks in very gruesome detail about how to clean your butt. Um, 
and, uh, and how to brush your teeth in another chapter and how to put away your clothes in another chapter. So his, his and the reason I chose in New York to do the butt cleaning chapter is because I, I kind of wanted to get into this idea that Dogen was uh, not just philosophical, but extremely practical and that he, he tied these things together. So for him, everything was Buddhist practice. I mean, people say that all the time, uh, but I, I wonder how much they mean it, you know. And and Dogen really meant it because he gets right down into the into the real details there when he when he talks about butt cleaning. Uh, but anyhow, uh, rather than do the butt cleaning chapter, I'm going to try a chapter called Sokushin uh, Let's try it again. Sokushin Zebutsu, which is mind here and now is Buddha. And it's one of these phrases that one hears a lot. And it's a, it's a rather short chapter. In most cases, I've taken uh, Dogen's chapters and shortened them. In, in pr pretty much every case, I've shortened them. But, uh, but this one started out short uh, to begin with. And um, I'm just going to read you my version of it. So what I've done is I've tried to uh, write, in, in a way, trying to to take what Dogen actually wrote in translation and then try to put it in my own words. Uh, I studied with a teacher who produced what was at the time uh, the only complete translation into English of Shobo Genzo that, uh, that was in print. Uh, this is during the 1990s. There's subsequently um, two other versions have shown up. And then there was an earlier version um, that, uh, that I had a hell of a time finding, um, but, uh, but I did find. And I, I just discovered a month ago that there was, there's yet one more complete English version that, that's, uh, that comes from those, those dark days before everybody was translating Shobo Genzo. Um, not everybody, but what, what I mean to say is there's four, there's four complete versions right now of the whole 95 chapters that are fairly easy to find. I mean, you might not find them in every Barnes & Noble outlet, but you can find them online for free. So I thought, you know, it, it's fine to do a kind of a messed up translation. Oh, since you'll be looking at this as I'm reading it, I, I'll just explain the cover. Uh, the cover, is, the cover. I didn't draw this cover, but it was, it was basically my idea. I told, I told the publishers this kind of idea I had for the cover, and they liked it, and they followed it. Um, what I wanted to do was, was make it in the style of one of these ancient Japanese woodcuts, but it's a, a monster. I used to work for a company that made monster movies. Um, and it's a monster uh, destroying an ancient Japanese temple in much the fashion that I am destroying Dogen's ancient Japanese <laughs> <laughs> So that's, that's kind of the idea behind this cover. And a lot of people don't get it. You know, a lot of people have other theories about what the cover means, but... Um, some people say, "Oh, he's being a jerk," but that doesn't. And you could read it that way. You could look at it that way, but that isn't. That wasn't the idea I had. Anyway, so I'm going to read this, and it's only three pages, uh, and then we'll see if that sparks any discussion. And I have another, even more difficult bit uh, that I can bust out. That's a bit longer if, if we don't get anywhere with this. Okay. Every Buddha and every patriarch maintained the principle that mind here and now is Buddha. However, this phrase was not heard in India. It was first spoken in China. When dumb people hear, mind here and now is Buddha, they think it means that the intellect and sense perception of people who've never established the truth is Buddha. That's because they don't have decent teachers. 
A guy called Seneca was a good example of someone who thought he understood Buddhism and wrote a lot about it, but never got it at all. Here's what he says. And here, now that follows, this is a, a Seneca speaking now. The great truth exists in our body here and now, so it is easy to recognize. The everlasting soul can differentiate between cold and heat and pain and pleasure, and can recognize aches or itches. Things come and go, but the soul remains unchanged. This spiritual intelligence pervades all things without disting distinguishing ordinary from sacred. Even though we may encounter illusory things, they're all just like flowers floating in the sky. Once we develop the right kind of wisdom, all that stuff vanishes. The soul alone remains. When you die, your soul comes out of your body like a guy running out of a burning house. This everlasting, all-pervading soul is what we call Buddha, or enlightenment, or we call it the true self, or original essence. After you recognize what you really are, you no longer have to transmigrate through birth and death, and you don't get reincarnated again. There's no reality other than that of the all-pervading soul. Okay, that's Seneca. So now we're back to Dogen. Buddhist Master Nanyo Echu asks a monk, where are you from? The monk says, I'm from way down south. Master Echu says, are there good teachers down there? The monk says, sure, lots. Master Echu says, what do they teach? The monk says, down south, they say, mind here and now is Buddha. Buddha is consciousness itself. The body appears and disappears, but the true all-pervading spiritual essence is eternal. Like a snake shedding its skin or a guy moving out of a crummy apartment, the eternal spirit moves on when the body dies. Master Echu says, if that's so, all they're teaching you is the non-Buddhist philosophy of Seneca. Master Echu says he's heard a lot of teachers say crap like this, and they're always hugely popular. But, Master Echu says, if seeing, hearing, awareness, and recognition are the same as Buddha nature, why would Vimalakirti, who is a layman in Buddha's time who understood Buddhist philosophy clearly and engaged in a lot of dialogues with him, uh, that, transform, that formed a book called Vimila, the Vimalakirti Sutra? Okay. Uh, so, why would Vimalakirti say, the Dharma is transcendent over seeing, hearing, awareness, and recognition? Master Echu was a really great Zen teacher, so we should listen to him and not to Seneca. The immediate universe is not waiting for realization. This concrete world doesn't recede or appear. It's not just mind. Mind exists as fences and walls. It doesn't get muddy or wet. It's never artificial. We realize in practice that mind here and now is Buddha. The mind which is Buddha is here and now, and Buddha here and now is mind, mind and Buddha are here and now, and Buddha mind is here and now. This is something Dogen does a lot of. He takes these phrases and, and twists them around. Realization in practice is just mind here and now is Buddha. That's why Master Chore uh, Shitaku said, when somebody becomes conscious of mind, there isn't an inch of soil on earth. When we become conscious of mind, heaven falls down and the earth is torn apart. In other words, when we become conscious of mind, the earth grows three inches thicker. Master Isan Reyu says, Fine, pure, and bright is mountains, rivers, and the earth, sun, moon, and the stars. This means when we're moving forward, not enough, and when we're drawing backward, too much. 
Mind as mountains, rivers, and the earth is nothing but mountains, rivers, and the earth. There's no, there are no additional waves or surf, no wind or smoke. Mind as sun, moon, and stars is an additional fog or mist. Mind as living and dying, coming and going is nothing but living and dying, coming and going. There's no additional delusion or realization. Mind as fences, tiles, walls, and pebbles is just fences, tiles, walls, and pebbles. There's no additional mud or water. Mind here and now is Buddha, is untainted mind here and now is Buddha. If we don't establish the will, undergo training, realize the truth, and experience nirvana, then the state is not mind here and now is Buddha. But if we establish the will and do even a molecule of practice and experience, then mind here and now is Buddha. If we establish the will and practice slash experience for a single instant or for zillions of years or inside half a fist, which means concretely, then this is mind here and now is Buddha. Anyone who says this isn't so doesn't understand what mind here and now is Buddha means. Um, <clears throat> so that's preached at Kanon Dori Kosho Horinji Temple near Kyoto, May 25th, 1239. Uh, and I'll read you, my, my little commentary on there is, is only a page and a half, so I might as well just uh, finish off by reading that. Um, obviously, Dogen really wants to pound in this idea that Buddhism is not the belief in an eternal, unchanging soul that transmigrates from body to body. I've already talked about some of Dogen's views on reincarnation. I wrote a whole darn chapter on it. And here you get another taste of just how adamant he was about denying this belief, or at least in the sense, that, at least in the sense that it was commonly understood in his time and can, continues to be understood in ours. The fact that this was so important to him tells me that he probably had a lot of folks come to him asking about this stuff, just the way Buddhist teachers today often do. It must have been annoying. Uh, Dogen's big question when he was a young monk was this. If Buddhism teaches us that we're all perfect just as we are, and it does teach that, then why do we have to undergo training? A whole lot of Shobogenzo is Dogen's attempt to answer that question. When I say it's his attempt to answer that question, I don't mean that he was searching for an answer. He already understood deep in his bones why this is so, but he found it very difficult to articulate uh, it in a way that folks would understand. Uh, the answer to the question comes in actually doing meditation practice. It's not an intellectual matter. I once asked Nishijima Roshi, this is my teacher, uh, why Dogen spent so much time trying to explain stuff and why Nishijima also did so and why he was encouraging me to do it too. He said, people like to have explanations. That's true. That's what he said. And I said, that's true. <laughs> we don't explanations. We seem to need them. In the novel Kurt, Cat's Cradle, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, whose t-shirt I'm wearing today, ironically, has his character Bokanan, the founder of a religion, the founder of a religion based on lies that are actually true, composed the following poem. Tiger got to hunt, bird got to fly. Man got to sit and wonder why, why, why. Tiger got to sleep, bird got to land. Man got to tell himself he understand. Um, I read that book a long time before I met Nishijima or read Dogen, so I understood what Nishijima meant when he said we like explanations. We just need to feel we know or we can't rest. And yet much of life is unknowable and will remain so. Lots of religions try to deal with this by inventing explanations and myths. But myths only work if you don't try to turn them into factual explanations. 
If you try to turn your myths into literal inerrant truths, if, for example, you start insisting that Noah really did build an ark or the earth or that the earth was created in six days a few thousand years ago, it just becomes a big, huge mess. The solution Buddhism offers is what the Korean Buddhist master Sung San called don't know mind. You know that you don't know, so at least you feel like you know something, even if it's just the fact that you don't know. Uh, the other point that Dogen makes in this piece is that if we say, as many Buddhist masters do, that the whole world is just mind, it doesn't mean the same thing as saying consciousness is the ultimate reality. It also doesn't mean that the physical world is either non-existent or, at the very least, unimportant. The physical world as mine is still the physical world. It's real, even though our understanding of it is so messed up that we can call, it, we can call that understanding delusional. Dogen's Buddhism is not an idealistic or spiritual philosophy that denies the physical world, nor is it a materialistic philosophy that considers the physical world the only reality. It says that neither of these positions is the right one. Reality, according to Dogen, is neither matter nor spirit, but something that transcends those categories. Saying that it is mind alone just reminds us that what we conceive of as mind is an intimate aspect of all things, even inanimate objects, and that we are so deeply connected with everything around us that we can say there is really no separation at all. And that's the end of that bit. Um, uh, let me see if I can remember this uh, quote. Um, we, uh... Okay, this is it. Uh, I was just, uh, I was at Piruza's house and his dad was watching Cosmos, the, uh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson, Regal Sagan. And towards the end of the first episode, there's this quote. They, they actually do a little sound clip of, of Carl Sagan from the original series. And he says, we are a way by which the cosmos comes to know itself. I think it's, that's close enough to the quote. And I find that really interesting. This, this is sort of something that's been driving my own practice uh, for a little while now, uh, this, this idea. Uh, of course, it's very hard to know if this is true, but, whoa, but I believe it to be true. Um, I think human beings have a kind of special uh, position. Does that mean it's, uh, oh, it's 8 o'clock? Uh, we, we're unlike anything else that we know about in, in, in the world, you know, as far as we've studied. Uh, we have this ability to know things and to express them uh, to each other, to communicate. Uh, we, there's some people that speculate that maybe dolphins and whales do this, and there's actually been some studies I've been fascinated uh, by that, that seems to indicate uh, other animals that we previously thought couldn't do that may also be doing a rudimentary version of communicating. But, that it's, but we know that nobody communicates on the kind of sophisticated level, nobody on this planet anyway, that we know about, uh, communicates on this kind of sophisticated, detailed level that we do which enables us to build this great um, society with all this uh, wonderful stuff. You know, we have electric lights and we have these cameras and we have computers and, and in my pocket is a little tiny computer called an iPhone. You know, we have all this stuff and technology, which, uh, 
which is this result of us being what Dogen calls in another chapter of Shobogenzo, uh, we are the eyes and ears with which it comes to know itself. He uses this uh, Chinese word inmo, which roughly translates to it. Uh, sometimes in different translations, they translate inmo as suchness. But I like it better because it's more literally it. It's a kind of a, it's one, it's a Chinese sort of word that functions quite the same as our, it's an ancient Chinese word that nobody uses in China anymore. But anyway, it's a word that kind of functioned as a stand-in for something that you didn't really know what the name of was and how to describe it. And so he uses that to uh, refer to the cosmos, you know, this, this great unknown thing. But, uh, but he refers to us as the eyes and ears with which it comes to know itself. So we have this unique position within the universe of behind what we are as human beings, I think. Uh, we're always trying to define exactly what that is. But I think one of the most interesting ways I've come across is this thing that comes out not just in Dogen, but in a lot of the Buddhist uh, philosophy, that we are, we are the eyes and ears of the universe. We are, we are something which is, which is uh, gathering up the, uh, the, the sum total of what the universe is and, and making, making it into something that, um, that is consciously understood, at least at some level. Uh, and, and I think that means, this is my little sermon I've been delivering as I've been traveling a lot, um, I think that means that we're, we're important. You know, I, I think everything is important. Everything on the earth and everything everywhere is important. But we have a unique kind of importance that we shouldn't uh, downplay. Uh, we, we, are, we are on the cusp of something uh, that could potentially be really amazing because we're doing something that hasn't, as far as we know, appeared in the universe before. It certainly hasn't appeared on the earth before. Um, and, and, and what we do with that from now on is, is critical. I think not just for ourselves, you know, this sounds really, you know, crazy probably, um, but I think on a kind of cosmic scale, what we do is, is really significant. And, and part of that involves uh, coming to a better understanding of, of what we are. And, and I think a lot of how we can do that is, uh, is why I got into uh, meditation practice uh, to begin with, because it's this practice of, of actually stopping. I'm sure some of you in this room know about it, um, where you actually just stop and quietly take in uh, what's actually going, around, going on around you and within you uh, without, without judging it, without trying to manipulate it in any specific direction, um, just, just staying very still and, and letting it all happen. You know, without without any aid or, or interruption, or as much as possible without any aid or interruption, uh, and I think that's that's going to become something. Uh, this is I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb. I don't usually go <laughs> this far with audiences, but we'll see if this sparks anything in kind of discussion. Um, I think that's something that's going to become really critical uh, for humanity in the future. This is, this is my little speculation. Uh, somebody at one of the talks uh, over this weekend brought up the uh, statistic that only 6% of the world identifies as Buddhist. Probably it's an even smaller percentage who actually meditate and actually work on the thing that Buddha himself 
made his life's work to teach people uh, meditation. Uh, so, so there's a very small sliver of humanity. And of course, there are meditators in other traditions. Um, last night, I met uh, a guy from, uh, God, I wish I could come up with the order of contemplatives he was part of. It was one I hadn't heard of before. But I, I talked to him for a while. He was from an order of Christian contemplatives, and he was also interested in, in Zen. So he was in the Catholic tradition. And um, I've read uh, a bunch of stuff about that tradition, and, and there's, a, there's a very deep meditative tradition in, in Christianity that's also not part of the mainstream of Christianity. Uh, there's an Islamic meditative tradition. There's a, there's a Jewish meditative tradition. There's, a, there's all kinds of there's Native American traditions. So it goes on uh, around the world, and you can see this kind of thread of this, you know, what they sometimes call mystical inquiry uh, that goes throughout uh, throughout human history and goes back a very, very long time. And the Buddhist stream is just one particular stream of it that happens to be quite interesting because it's very highly developed. You know, this is the one thing that um, if if there could, you know, I'd like, I don't like to be, um, you know, a, 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 a shill for my own uh, faith or whatever, but if there is one thing that you could kind of point to that, that makes the Buddhist tradition uh, a little bit more um, interesting than a lot of the others is the fact that it's so highly developed. You know, in, in the other traditions that exist, it's it's always it's always a minority, a, a very minority tradition uh, that hasn't really had a chance to grow very far. Whereas in the Buddhist tradition, it's become uh, very central. Um, but that's the only thing. I I, I once had this. Um, I've had a couple of conversations with both of my teachers about. Um, what is Buddhism, you know, and how, what, what does Buddhism mean? And both of them said uh, that we, we could eventually throw away uh, the trappings of Buddhism and the word Buddhism. Uh, we keep it uh, for now because it's an honest way of describing where this tradition comes from and who it comes from, who's sitting behind me up there. Um, and, and it's a way of honoring the person who, who's got the ball rolling. Uh, and, but, but my favorite way of describing it is it's sort of a little bit like somebody decided to call theoretical physics Einsteinism, you know, just to honor Einstein. But you wouldn't want to, if you were going to be true to Einstein's vision, you wouldn't want to freeze everything with Einstein and say, only the things that Einstein said from Einstein's words, poof, you know, and we must worship, you know, that would be, that would be totally antithetical to what Einstein stood for. The, in the same way, I think uh, Buddhism is, is quite the same. We call it Buddhism to honor Buddha and the tradition that he came out of, but if we were to freeze Buddhism at the, you know, at the year 2500 BC and say, poof, you know, here is Buddhism, it's here, poof, you know, it's done. Uh, we would not be honoring at all what uh, what he set into motion. And it's clear from even the preserved words of Buddha that he did not intend this to be a static, one-time revelation, that he was trying to set something going that other people would then pick up on and maybe even improve upon. You know, that's a slight, you know, a little dangerous area to get into in certain places, but, uh, but I think it's entirely possible. The, the same way... We build on the foundations of Einstein, but we, we, uh, we keep those foundations. We build on the foundations of Buddha, but we, we also preserve those foundations. Um, so, I've talked for 40 minutes or so. Does that spark any sort of 
desire to open this up to a, a discussion? I guess I can sort of shut up for a minute and see if that if anything happens. Otherwise, I can go on to the other bit. There's a, there's a video out there. It's the Symphony of Science. Mm-hmm. And part of this YouTube music video, it's all of these different um, like scientists, some of them more public fi- figures and mm-hmm. others. And so Carl Sagan's in this. And that quote is in there. No. I don't even know if it's Carl Sagan saying it um, about, you know, it's the, Universe, the chance for the universe to, to know itself. Yeah, yeah. And it's awesome. Like, it's yeah, really yeah. epic. They talk about how, um, uh, like, every atom that's in a person comes from a star. Yeah. Event, you know, yeah, at yeah. some point. And I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty epic. You it's know, pretty, you, yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. Well, that, oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then, when I think about that, when I take that as as a truth, that's where, like me personally, I start to to doubt that idea of well, we are special. I yeah. mean, if you take that as truth, I mean, then well, then what isn't special? Hmm. And then you say, well, what isn't special? And then you say, well, then special isn't special. That sounds zenny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. I think I think we position not just that humans are the only ones, but I think I think we sometimes devalue how special we actually are. You know, I, I see a little bit of that going on, and I, I think we have a kind of a duty to advance this this thing. You know, I kind of feel like you know, and this is me speculating a bit, but I think, why did, why did something like us evolve? I've been thinking about this a lot and reading, you know, whatever I can find out about it. Uh, this, I'll go on a little tangent here and see if it's interesting. I, 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 um, I love dinosaurs. I've always, you know, since I was a kid, I love dinosaurs and I'm still a dinosaur, you know, enthusiast. So I read the, you know, the latest stuff that comes out. And I came across this, this piece on the internet, which somebody had speculated the dinosaurs were around maybe, you know, 50 times as long as, as maybe 20 or 50 times, I forget, as long as mammals have dominated the earth, the dinosaurs dominated the earth much, much longer, right? So we know that. How come, if, if evolution is intended, as, as some people sort of speculate, is intended to produce something like us, now how come it didn't happen... Uh, 200 million years ago or 70 million years ago or during the dinosaur times. And this, this, uh, this writer who was a kind of a science fiction writer who studied paleontology a lot, so he was a semi-expert, he said, well, we don't really have a complete fossil record. And it's not entirely, it would be weird if we found out that dinosaurs had cities and a space program and <laughs> stuff like that. But, but there's still a chance that we might find evidence that there were there was tool use among some of the more advanced dinosaurs, or maybe that they discovered fire, or maybe that they made some kind of art or something, you know, that some, that some species of dinosaur that we haven't yet discovered, um, you know, under the ice of Antarctica or something, some fossil, we might find um, that, that, that that happened. But, uh, but he was saying how in the case of the dinosaurs that we know that were the most intelligent, they also had sharp teeth and big claws, right? So they didn't have a need to develop uh, intelligence as a, as a survival mechanism. 
Whereas it seems that in human history, at some point in the primate line, we emerged, you know, as this sort of mutant chimpanzee or whatever the hell we are, and who, who lacked physical strength and lacked a lot of the agility of the other, of the other um, primates, uh, lacked claws and, and, and hair and stuff. So the only thing we had in our favor was we, we were born with these mutantly big brains, you know, and so we could, we could out-clever the competition, you know. Uh, instead of a, a saber, we can poke the saber-toothed tiger with the stick and go, wow, you know, we win that round. Um, and, and, this, and this becomes, you know, this is the, the start of what becomes, you know, eventually all of this, you know, the city of Rochester, you know, and all this amazing stuff. Um, so, so, but why, you know, somehow nature produced this, you know, and we could look at nature as being kind of purposeless and it just kind of, everything comes about by accident. And the sort of current understanding of, of science is, is like that. And I, and I think that's very appealing, but I also, you know, I'm also a weirdo enough to speculate that maybe um, when, when Dogen talks in this chapter about mind is fences, tiles, pebbles, and boulders, whatever he says, you know, that kind of stuff, that mind might be something that's inherent um, <clears throat> in the fabric of the universe. That what we, we experience something and we call it my mind, you know, and I think I have a mind and I think these things and I write this book. And we, and we personalize it, you know, and we think it belongs to us and we speculate that when we die, this mind will do a thing and it'll go to heaven or whatever else it'll do or reincarnate. Um, but maybe that's completely wrong. Maybe mind is kind of inherent within the structure of the universe, a kind of, I don't want to call it consciousness, but a, a kind of knowing or a kind of experiential thing. And that all we're doing that's kind of unique to us is we have the processing equipment as animals of being, to, being able to process mind at a very uh, high level compared to anything else that we know. So that makes us a kind of special, but we're kind of screwing up, you know, uh, as we all know, and, and, and we're being very sort of selfish about it. And we're starting now, you know, after thousands and thousands of years to, to realize, you know, we've, we've come a long way, but we can't keep going this direction. We can't keep just reforming everything to fit our needs because we're part of, of a larger system, you know, and that, and that we've been, some, some humans have been less ignorant of that than others, but especially the Western stream has been, you know, our success, in, you know, goes hand in hand with our ignorance of how, of how uh, we are not connected with this thing. But it's coming around, though. People, people within this civilization are starting to go, oh, yeah, maybe these Native Americans and these other people and these, you know, were, were right. Maybe we're actually connected with it to be. But we can also um, find a way to integrate that with the ability to produce uh, incredible technology. And maybe, you know, if we want to get really speculative, if it turns out that there is anything else like us that that evolved on another planet, you know, we might be able to communicate with those guys and say, hey, you know, we did this, how about you guys, you know, and, and see, uh, and see, uh, and see what that, you know, where that goes. 
Um, that that's highly speculative right there, but uh, I don't think it's impossible. You know, I think it may be something that our distant um, descendants uh, might uh, might find to be a real, you know, something that we're going to have to deal with at some level. But anyway, that's my <laughs> weird weird science fiction talk. <laughs> I think the next book I come out with is going to be called Weird Science Fiction Talk. I'll just do Was there an animated stuff. series called Dinosaurs? Was there? Oh, God, no. Was. It sounds like one I'd like to see. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I was just wondering, I'm not too familiar with a lot of the practices, but I was just wondering, like, what do you think? about all of the technology talking about that that's going on right now do you think we would have been better without that technology do you think it's better you know sometimes i think you know the re it's like one foot in and one foot out of what's going on right yeah. now it's like and the only real answer is to say see you later and go to the amazon and like live in the jungle <laughs> yeah 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 not worry and not think about money and live off of the the vegetation of the land and, yeah. and the people and, and that's sometimes what I think real love is about. But, but, so then again, my yeah. family's here. I don't, yeah. know, I don't think the luxury is a lot of sacrifice. It's a, you know, so I wonder what your thought is about that kind of thing. It's interesting. It's, yeah, I, I like that question. It's, it's a really appealing thing. It reminds me of a time uh, we, were, uh, we were going to a temple uh, with my teacher in Japan and we always did these retreats with him in the summers, in, in usually in, in July or August. So it, if, I don't know if any of you have been in Japan, but Japan, uh, most of the country becomes brutally hot in July and August, and it's incredibly humid over there. So it's really, it can be really a, a, a chore to try to deal with life. And, and he said something about, I'm very glad this temple has air conditioning, <laughs> you know. And, and, and he kind of started riffing on that. You know, he's talking about, you know, he's very glad he was in his 80s by then, and Japan was a bit slower. You know, they really went went through a big technological uh, after World War II of, of to get for World War II. Um, so, so he he probably lived without running water and electricity when he was a child. I never heard him talk about it, but um, but um, so so he kind of knew both ways, and and so it's it's um, I, I think I think. I've often, uh, like you, you know, speculated that well, maybe we'd be better off just, you know, going and, and living in the trees and the in the shrubs. But I'm not, <laughs> you know. I was just complaining to Piruz about the suburbs, you know. Yeah, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, and 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 uh, and I, you know, I go to the suburbs. And I'm like, oh my god, I, you know, it's, it, you know, I can't get an egg roll at three in the morning. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, uh, it, you know, that's kind of, you know. So I'm, I'm, co I'm totally, you know, I'm totally uh, urbanized at this point. Um, so, so you, you. Um, you, I, I think, I think it's a way of trying to find a way to manage it, and I think we're 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 not there yet. You know, we're probably a few generations off, to be quite honest. I, I think, you know, probably most of us in this room will will die with the world still being kind of in a in a mess. But if we continue on the path we're going, we might find a way to integrate that so that we can have a certain level of of technology and, and creature comforts and things without you know, screwing up everything else. 
Um, I, I think people are working on that now, and, and I, I feel really positive about it. I know there's plenty of resistance to that, but I think, I think eventually that resistance is going to start to wear down. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of like, <laughs> just to pick a slightly weird way of putting it, but, you know, it's sort of like uh, uh, marijuana, you know, how, how legalized marijuana is becoming a thing all over the country. And, and for years, it sort of looked like that would never happen. But it's just as the generations go, it, you, people start to see, okay, well, that was, that was stupid, you know. And, and, and then the, the people who were resisting to it sort of die off. I'm, I'm not advocating for marijuana, but I, you know, but, you know, I think it's kind of a truism that everybody thinks that it's silly to have alcohol be legal and marijuana to be illegal. That's just dumb. But, um, but you know, I think it's like that. I think this, it's concern for the environment will, will start to go the same way. You know, you'll start to get less, the people who are sort of resisting it are, are going to start kind of disappearing, you know, as the generations go on. And then, and then we'll, we'll get it together. I saw your hand go yeah. up. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know much, but, you know, not to be a pessimist or anything, but <clears throat> it, and I think it's a little different than marijuana in the, in, in the sense that, like, you know, you mentioned Einstein. When when, yeah. the bomb, when the bomb was tested, he said, you know, everything's changed now. Yeah. Except for the way we think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's what's different. You know, right. like we can have a certain amount of change, but what doesn't change is that, that fundamental sense of separation that we have. And, and then all the behaviors that come out of that sense, yeah. I think, can we really leap beyond that as a species? Or is yeah. that sort of that dual nature that we're always kind of up against? You know? I, think in, I think in a sense it's both. I think in a sense we're always going to have that dual nature. One of the things I like about Dogen, to kind of bring it back to him, is he, he owns up to the idea that there is... Um, there was a resistance. I, I, one of the things my teacher, Nishimaroshi, used to say a lot was that to understand Buddhism, you have to have a total balance between love and hate, you know? And, and this, was a, this was a, when I first heard it, I was listening carefully, and it was kind of shocking to hear that, because I didn't, you know, I thought it was all about love and no hate. Um, but he was talking about hate in the sense of what, I think what you're kind of going into, this sense of separation and, and sense of separation you know, of, of individuality and stuff. And so we're kind of, we're kind of stuck with that in a way. But we can also transcend that and find a way to balance it. And I, I feel like the picture looks kind of bleak right now, you know, with, with the way things are, especially in America this year, you know, we don't want to <laughs> politicize the talk, but you know, it looks pretty, it looks kind of grim. But I, I kind of feel like the trend is going towards that. I think more you know, this small minority of people who are starting to see that there is a bigger something and that we don't have to enshrine that bigger something. You know, the, the thing is, the thing about religion is, religion tries to take that bigger something, that more universal, eternal, whatever it is, and, and enshrine it and say, it's just like this, poof, you know, and, and, uh, and then make it into an object. Uh, and, and, that, and then that turns off a whole swath of people who otherwise, people like me, to be honest, who otherwise would be interested in religion because we just go, oh, I'm not interested in this thing where people just turn it into this big object. So I go, okay, there's no universal anything and it's every man for himself. And, you know, and, and, and that creates this big division. But I think the truth is we can find a way to balance those. And I tend to feel optimistic about it. And, and, and I, 
I didn't feel optimistic about this stuff for a very long time. You know, I was in um, my own personal history. I was in the punk rock scene, and I was this kind of, you know, I was, a, was and now am again the bass player for this hardcore punk band called Zero Defects, and we were we had a song called "Drop the A Bomb on Me" because you know we're you know we're all doomed anyway, so you know might as well drop the A bomb right on me. Um, so so that was. Um, that was that was this kind of uh, attitude, you know, and I was very much part of that. So I, I started, you know, I ended up through weird circumstances in Japan, and and I was a Zen. I was into Zen even before I got to Japan. But I found this teacher, and this teacher is super optimistic about, you know, oh, you know everything's getting better. And I'm going, how can you say that, you know? But then I thought, you know, he was in. He was in Japan during World War II, and he was conscripted into the Imperial Japanese Army and all this stuff. So he saw some really uh, hard times, you know, much more than, than, than most of us have had the uh, opportunity <laughs> to see. Um, and he came out of it with this optimistic view. So I think, I think we can find a way to balance our individual um, sense with this more universal sense. And I think that's kind of what what I feel we're aiming for with the, the, the whole Buddhist practice and stuff. It's so quiet in here when it gets quiet. Well, I can try again. I mean, Dogen, Dogen has this quote, which I'm, it's in this book. I'm not going to try to find it because I'll just spend briefly to the effect of we are the eyes and ears with which it experiences itself. So it being the universe. And, and I, I, I really feel that's, that's the case because our, we're processing, I feel like mind is not my mind and your mind and her mind and his mind, their mind and, and never the twain shall meet. I feel that mind may be something intrinsic and, and that we are just, you know, our big brains are able to process it in a, in a very, maybe not quite accurate, it's not, probably not the word for it, but in a very detailed way. Uh, and, and to express it to each other and to, to, to speak to each other and to kind of find out what everybody else's experience is. It's one of the interesting things about Buddhism I think is that it's not, people kind of, um, the individual aspects of Buddhist practice often get a lot of press, you know, the meditation and all of this, but it's also a very social thing, you know, and, and um, the interaction between, one of the things that's enshrined in, in Buddhism as a kind of, you know, you must never deviate from this, you know, it's one of the few sort of really dogmatic things is that you must always have a teacher. Uh, and and that that to me is is interesting because it's not something you just go off you know this individual inquiry into the deep nature of self is is a big part of it but also you are supposed to as part of this practice check in with somebody else uh, about this inquiry that you're having and you do it you know there's ritualized means in um, and sanzen and dokusan is there are the two Japanese words that are used for it, you know, where you actually meet with your teacher and have a talk about it. Um, so I think by sharing this, uh, we discover more of it individually and we discover more of it as a society. You know, as the society continues to share 
this information. Um, we, you know, we, we end up doing a lot of stupid things with it. Like, look at this pretty cat video. <laughs> the cat is playing a tambourine. Can you believe that? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and that's fun. But you can also share things that are, that are really amazingly deep and, and profound uh, with the same, using the same tools. Uh, and, I, and I think we're just, we're just taking baby steps into it. That there's going to come a generation later who will look at the things we do that we think are really cutting edge and they're going to go, oh yeah, that was really quaint. Facebook. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Twitter. Can you imagine? <laughs> pa was just like, you know, there'll be a time when people are going to be saying that, you know? Uh, a, a friend of mine who's a physicist said, it's, speaking about what you're talking about, the the knowing itself kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, he said that it's like, um, it's it's almost like we're antennas. Yeah. And we're kind of like picking up the signal of mind. Yeah, I think that's true. And that dope sounds like your antenna sharing with my antenna. Yeah, yeah. Like we're sharing the same thing. Oh, like you and I get the same signal. Yeah. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true, and I I think it's interesting how a lot of people in in the area of theoretical physics are starting to, to. Uh, to, to see kind of the same things, these, these uh, I won't even say just Buddhists, because the Buddhists have done it a lot, but there's other mystical traditions that do it too, and that are going, well, you know, maybe these people are right, you know, maybe this idea that we are uh, intimately connected, you know, the whole uncertainty principle kind of points to this idea that, um, you know, that's where a, a particle doesn't, a, a particle or a thing doesn't become a particle or a wave until an observer actually observes it, you know, you can't, you can't say one way or the other. Um, it indicates that maybe this, I, I hate the word consciousness because consciousness tends to, to move people in the wrong direction. But I, I think this, uh, this something, this, this knowing of, of things is actually part, part of, of, of the universe, is part of the, the, the actual groundwork of what we're dealing with. It's not just, a, it's not just that we're little machines up here processing something. There's actually something going on in the interaction between our the subject and object. All right, and that's where the recording ends, so I hope you enjoyed it. That was me at the Rochester Zen Center, and if you want to support what I do, you can go to the URL hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you can find my donation links, and I really appreciate your donations. But as I said right at the beginning, you don't got to donate if you don't want to donate. We'll see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Bye.